Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. You join us on another bright day here in the capital city as once again we put the topic of leadership under the spotlight. My name is Scott Challoner and I'm delighted to be joined on today's programme by Alan Carter. Alan is the Senior Academic Advisor at Sherwell College, an independent co-educational boarding school in Oxford. Alan, very warm welcome to you and thank you ever so much for taking the time to join us this afternoon. Thank you very much for having me. It's a real pleasure, Alan. Now, the purpose of this discussion is to really understand your take on leadership as a whole. And I think it's fair to say, isn't it, that leadership is something that's really been put to the test at the moment with the emergence of COVID-19, no less, and different leaders of businesses, organisations, institutions having to feel their way through what is ultimately an unprecedented crisis. So for somebody working within education, such as yourselves, how has it been trying to get through the, uh, the last few weeks? Because I can imagine it has posed one or two challenges. Challenges. Well, it's been um, difficult, obviously, but at the same time, we have managed to adapt our existing uh, provision, our existing um, <clears throat> services, if you like, to the uh, online world. Um, and uh, the uh, tutorials that we run are normally on a very small um, one-to-one basis anyway. So in that sense, we find it not too dissimilar to um, normal teaching. The uh, uh, Obviously, the use of the internet is, is tricky, and indeed, the dispersal of our students is also tricky. But in, in some ways, the actual nuts and bolts of what we have to do is not so tremendously impacted as we might have expected at the beginning. And um, there have been some uh, um, very some small, dare I say, benefits, which I might talk about later. And do you think that in the future there will be more of an emphasis on online provision if it has gone well during this time? I think so. I think we can be more confident about um, dealing in uh, with our online content and handling online content and, and also <clears throat> educating through online content, which does need a different skill set, um, obviously. Um, it, it's nice always to have the reinforcement of uh, of an actual physical presence um, and indeed we might compare something like the Open University which does use that method where one is you know only called in physically very you know periodically so um, it has been something that uh, has you know been a a, as I say almost not exactly a benefit but it has um, it's made us more confident I think in in the delivery of online where we might have seen it as a a second a poor second to uh, a physical presence. I don't necessarily think it is now. And I'm interested to understand how the uh, the staff at the college and also the pupils have sort of taken to the uh, the transition toward online provision because there's a great deal of sort of people management that comes into this in the sense that there's a renewed focus on mental health and well-being during this time. It's been a very uncertain time um, for a lot of people and it's been quite difficult um, as well um, just to keep the communication channels open even though, of course, technology is proving to be a vital part in that. So um, how do you think people have taken to it within the uh, the college itself. Do you think um, it's been quite an inspiring response that you've seen around you and that it's been quite seamless or have you had to have one or two quite sort of difficult discussions as people have looked towards the likes of yourself for reassurance during this period? In, in a way, it's not been as, again, um, the uh, role of uh, parents particularly. Parents have been very supportive um, and um, 
in a very direct way. So they're able to actually uh, help us too. So the, uh, the role of parents, which might be a little bit distant in a, in a conventional boarding setting, in a sense has changed. So they're able to uh, be more aware, um, do a little bit of supervision themselves. Um, I suppose the only the twist will come with things like testing, whereas running objective testing is quite tricky online. And that's something which we'd have to address in a, a different way in the future. But in the main, some colleagues, a very small number, have felt very un, 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 um, <clears throat> unhappy about um, the development of, of the online uh, systems in terms of uh, things like security and so on. But that's really a very uh, small minority. Most people seem to be fairly uh, well adjusted and indeed take advantage of the. Um, of, of the, uh, the system as it stands. So in, in that way, again, it's not been as impactful in terms of what we can deliver and the, the quality of what we can do as we might have expected at the very beginning. Mm. And that's really encouraging uh, to hear uh, for certain. Um, with regards to government guidelines um there's been a great deal of debate of course alan as to how clear and transparent they've been and of course clarity transparency are two very important elements of leadership within their own right um so i'm interested to understand have you been satisfied as an institution that you've known throughout this pandemic what's been expected of you and that the route forward is now clear in terms of reopening and trying to revert services to what will be the new normal as we move forward well, I suppose I, we could, on the one hand, say, no, we do not know. But then in terms of the where we are in the UK at the moment, nobody does quite know where we might be in, in September. We can look around and see other parts of the world which have moved on uh, to some extent in, the, in their own different ways in different circumstances and try and extrapolate from that and make some um, guesses. But indeed, no, we are faced with uncertainty, but that uncertainty, I would say, in the main, again, is supported by the, or support is almost counter, countered by the support we have from, from parents all around the world who still seem uh, relatively confident and um, maybe not quite in the numbers that we would have expected, but certainly they are still confident enough to, to plan to send their children uh, to school um, in the UK um, within the next you know, 12 months. They don't see that it, it as being a, a something that's going to um, prevent, um, you know, the, the normal run of education in the in the in the long run. So, mm. um, I would say we're not as, um, although we, yes, of course we we'd, we'd like we would all like <laughs> to know more, but we don't know what we don't know, and that's what we 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 you know what, what we find is that people are. And more I say, well, look, we think that things should be at least, um, you know, accessible. And the main thing is there may be a sort of a, a, a new normal, as they say, but it, the accessibility um, of our premises and so on will, will, uh, it will, it will still be there, even if it, it is under slightly changed circumstances. And given that the overseas student market, which is very important to Oxford's educational institutions, um, has been hampered during this time, and um, what can you see, Alan, for the sort of longer term future of that going forward? Of course, there will more than likely be a great number of deferrals, but can you see that ever really recovering? Um, I can't see it recovering to quite the same levels as it has done um, immediately, obviously. Um, but in some ways, um, and to put it, you know, 
kind of commercial sense, markets do change. Um, and so we notice um, a, a lot more interest from the Middle East, for instance. And that includes the, um, Saudi Arabia <coughs> um, and the whole of the Middle East, the Gulf states and uh, uh, the, the nearer Middle East uh, as well. So I, in some ways, the world changes as well as the actual nature of the current crisis. And that presents us with other other opportunities which we might not have, have, have seen before. So, in that way, um, the markets have always changed to some extent. I mean, we, we, if those with long memories, you know, there was a, there was one time there was a Soviet Union, you know, <laughs> it disappeared. And so, um, you know, the markets do do wax and wane like the moon. And I think that that's where we, I would like to think that we were we were more uh, adaptable and that we were able to um, um, not just be fixed on one particular you know on, on the uh, Southeast Asian market for instance as if that was going to be the only thing that was, would ever uh, be the you know the source of uh, more more students and would you say that being adaptable in that sense and looking to different uh, pools um, of uh opportunities is essentially the big thing that you've learned from this uh, crisis as well as adapting of course to the uh, the remote working side of things well i think yeah, i think it's yeah it's always been there as i say really because one you know one can't always um the crystal ball is not a, a good guy so you have to always be ready to to to, to uh, take on a, a, a different market or new challenge or a different market or do a new way of marketing or different um, approaches. Um, very, you know, if you work too closely on one particular channel, then that would be uh, a mistake. And I think that, that uh, you know, it's, for ourselves, we like to think of ourselves as an Oxford, say an Oxford College in miniature in that sense. We don't have a huge number uh, of students, so in that sense, we are quite lucky that we don't have to recruit in, in the thousands. Um, but the my point being that the um, the quality of provision has to be remain high. And I suppose you could argue that that is, is threatened somewhat by uh, the permanent. If we had to have online teaching permanently, we would be very hard to distinguish and say, well, what, mm. why, why even come to this place? What what, what makes it different? There is certainly um, that issue uh, for sure, um, Alan. And um, yeah, carry on. Yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. Okay, I was I was just going to ask actually if we um, if we backtrack uh, just for a moment, given the the nature of academics that you've worked with throughout uh, your career, I was wondering, are there any people that you've met as you've developed that you've really looked up to and have been a real inspiration on you? And if nobody in particular sticks out in terms of an individual, maybe. Tell us about some of the experiences that you might have had that have had a profound influence on you and your leadership style, if you will. Well, I suppose I would look back to um, Edward Green, who was the, the founder of the tutorial, the modern tutorial colleges in Oxford, as someone who, in a sense, uh, in the old way, led by practice, you know, um, led by example. And uh, um, also, he had a very kind of dedicated um view in that he, he there was a bit of a fusion between uh, life and work I suppose you could argue that his work-life balance wasn't particularly uh, great but the point being uh, that uh, he, he, he is, is dedica- the dedication and the uh, um, 
in the sense the folks the, the really particular focus on the needs of, of, of the individual. And um, I know my colleagues might disagree with me, but I do think we focus on what I would call a liberal education, and that means the development of the individual. It doesn't mean you can do what you like. Um, it means that you can, uh, in a sense, you're looking to develop the particular talents or or skills of 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 the of, of the your learners, as they say, or the students, as we still say here. So um, that's really what I, I would, uh, Edward Green, his um, uh, kind of um, ethos um, is something that um, is that followed me through the whole of uh, 35 years of, of working, teaching work in Oxford. So, I mean, uh, currently uh, Stephen Clark, the uh, our uh, Current principal, I mean, he's demonstrated it's, it is possible to start a, to refound a school that you don't mm. have to just accept that you, in a sense, what you're given, um, but you can, in a sense, bring in uh, new uh, ideas and and, and uh, you know new uh, methods. Which sometimes one thinks in education, it's uh, you know you're sort of stuck with what you've got. Well, that's not that's not the case. Um, I suppose if you want to go even further back, um, but I, I don't want to talk about my old uh, <laughs> teachers myself. They always say one one good teacher can uh, change uh, somebody's career, and in fact, can change almost leave a legacy through generations of of, of learners. But uh, Trevor Wilson, my old uh, teacher at school, he was again learning by example is is, is incredibly important. I hope that's uh, is that enough. <laughs> I hope I've gone too far there. Sorry. No, um, I think um, that's um, a really good um, summary of um, two people who've really had um, a profound um, influence, um, Alan, for sure. And um, I think it really does bring um, into the limelight this idea that some of the most influential people, leaders, if you will, that are out there can be people who are closest to us, such as teachers, mentors and colleagues. And that's really important to remember. Yeah. Um, having reflected on the uh, the past, however, it only serves, of course, that we discuss the future before we do wrap things up on the programme. So I'd be interested to understand what you envision for yourself and for Sharwell College as we move forward um, into the uh, the next year and really begin to look to the long term future under the new normal and also what you hope to achieve as an institution during that time period. Well, I hope, as I say, I hope that we can uh, extend our provision, and indeed, um, the we have a obviously a wide range of pupils from all over the the world, and that we can that we can maintain that, and that we can maintain we can maintain that in a in a, in a, in a what you might call an equitable way, and everybody is, is treated equally. There is there is no particular uh, favoritism to, towards one uh, a group of students or another. And indeed, that the, the the education that we provide would still be recognised as in a, a, a gold standard, if you like. But it's not um, the actual uh, qualifications that we provide um, do still have that, you know, credibility, uh, which is um, world renowned, and that is putting not too fine a point on it. So the, for instance, the Cambridge. Uh, uh, international assessments that we use are highly respected throughout the world, and um, we would look to maintain, you know, use them and carry on using them. And and that's something that I do worry about slightly is that the way that the crisis will might undermine, um, at least in the short term, the value of the assessments that people have 
had during this period um, in that people will find there will be some doubt as to whether the, uh, the, the grading system that's been used is really a true equivalent of what has happened in the past. And I think that's something which we obviously couldn't foresee um, and we couldn't have detailed planning for. So it's something that um, is there in the background as a, as a reminder that, that we do need to try and return to some you know, really um, uh, robust um, uh, assessment uh, fairly soon so that we can keep that, that recognized standard up and, and not uh, and not and not have this idea that we kind of have somehow stepping back, uh, and so I, in a way, it's not just business as usual. It's got to be business as usual plus, and um, and at the same time, as I say, the online systems do offer us a new opportunity to expand um, in 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 a, in a different way. And I think it would be incredibly interesting, Alan. Actually, um, if um, at some point in the next year we could catch up and just see how Showell College is branching out in that respect and we um, discuss some of those uh, new developments because it is well and good at this point in time speculating what the future might bring but it's something else entirely being able to have a look back retrospectively at what we've said today and really analyse just what has changed in the year the time between and it's a shame we're just about out of time on today's programme otherwise it's something that we could discuss long into the um, afternoon I'm sure but I think from my perspective and also from a listener's point of view it would certainly be fantastic to uh, thrash that out in a discussion later down the line. Okay. Yes. I guess that's fine. Be, that was. Uh, I mean, it's. Uh, you know, I've, I've had to probably be eating humble pies to some extent, but maybe not. Um, I, I hope that we, you know, we, we can be confident, and um, it's been great in a way to see uh, the feedback from uh, parents and students that it's now uh, that we've that we've got uh, despite the uh, the crisis. And um, as I say, the the main thing now is to keep. keep uh, standards uh, high so that we can um, to still offer that that uh, uh, really u- unique quality that uh, so many people look for when they're coming, when they're looking at educational provision around the world. Mm, and let's hope that there'll be some good news later on um, down the line to uh, to share as well as to how things are getting indeed. on behind the scenes. Indeed, Alan. Um, I have to say it's been a real pleasure having you uh, join us on the uh, the programme today. So I'll thank you once again for taking the time to join us. And most importantly, until we do touch base again in the future, do take care and do stay safe with all still going on because even though lockdown restrictions are gradually easing, we're certainly not out of the woods with this COVID-19 situation yet. Okay, thank you so much. That was Alan Carter speaking, the Senior Academic Advisor at Sherwell College. Coming up next on the programme today, I'll be handing over to Matthew O'Neill for his exclusive interview with Lord Blunkett. Lord Blunkett is an active member of the House of Lords, a former Labour MP and Secretary of State, and also the Chairman of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland. Now, despite being blind from birth, Lord Blunkett became one of the most prominent politicians of his generation, holding a number of senior positions in the Cabinet of then Prime Minister Tony Blair, and serving as the MP for his Sheffield, Brightside and Hillsborough constituency for 28 years. He was elevated to the House of Lords in August 2015, anointed Baron Blunkett of Brightside and Hillsborough. And I hope you enjoy listening just as much as Matthew enjoyed speaking with him. That is coming up next. Lord Blunkett, welcome. Thank you very much. It's very good to be with you. Um, well, of course, uh, nothing is being said uh, at the moment other than COVID-19, uh, which uh, we must touch on. 
Um, what would your message be to small businesses who are trying to keep going? Well, I think the last ones standing will be the ones that thrive when we get back to some sort of normality. So it's have confidence and courage. Obviously, take advantage as far as you can of the government help. I think that Rishi Sunak, the Chancellor, has gone about as far as you could have expected mm-hmm. in the circumstances. There are obviously small businesses that fall between the cracks, those who uh, don't have um, defined premises, can't benefit from the business rate waiver, uh, have not really been able to demonstrate that they can uh, adhere to the PAYE for furloughing staff and, of course, whether they can receive the the grant, 10000 or 25000 all, all of those who can uh, are obviously able at least to benefit from that for the time being and look to the future. But I think the second thing to say, and they don't need me to tell them this as a politician who who did once do a business studies qualification, which is that it will be a different world. And being able mm. to think about how that world will look in a year's time and be creative about it and learn from not just what's happening to you at this moment in time, but to others around you and the sector that you're working in, that will be really important. Do you feel that the long-term uh, effects of uh, the COVID-19 outbreak uh, will in some ways be positive uh, for British industry? Well, only in the sense that people are having to be creative, they're having to adjust and innovate. Therefore, they're thinking about more productive, if you like, greater productivity ways of delivering the same service or delivering the same products. And in that sense, I think we'll have temporarily at least very much higher unemployment than we've become used to, but we'll probably have a burst of productivity, Mm -hmm. which will help with the recovery, whether it will help with the inequity of the way in which our economy is imbalanced, both between services and productivity and and, uh, production of goods and services, I'm not sure. What we will need to try and do is to ensure that the geographic imbalance that exists is, as far as humanly possible, is dealt with by both Uh, the entrepreneurship and innovation from the bottom up and targeted government help, which will still be needed. And we are now in the throes of the kind of borrowing that we saw back in 2008 to save the banking and economic system. We're we're having to do that to save the whole of our productive business and Mm -hmm. commerce. And I think that will have to be sustained for some time. Do you feel that people will take a second look at global supply chains in the wake of this outbreak? I think there's going to be much more creative ways of using local supply and linking up inside sectors much more effectively. And I hope that the Leaders' Council will be able to play a part in that in the sense that people who Mm. have something in common, a synergy in terms of what they're delivering, whether it's a service or whether it's manufacturing or whatever, uh, will be able to see that there's a, a, a good outcome from n- knowing the sector better, linking with people, not just geographically locally, but those in this country who may not have been on the radar in terms of what they produced for the supply chain. And, of course, um, ensuring, because there's quite a lot of fraud going on as we speak with um, people getting into cyber attacks, 
that they'll also take account of going into the the cybersecurity side effectively as well. The more we are online, the more people who are working from home, the more vulnerable those businesses and their supply chain become. And that's something to think about as well. How important is strong leadership at the moment? Well, I actually think that it's brought to the fore leadership in a whole range of areas from obviously government itself. And there's been ups and downs with the Prime Minister's uh, severe illness. But all the way through the public and private sector, people have, to use the jargon, stepped up. And they've shown uh, local, regional, national level the kind of leadership that Britain historically was very good at. Regrettably, we've not seen seen the same on the international scene for Mm. all kinds of reasons, Uh, but maybe we will in future. So I think out of this will come experience of people who have seen an opportunity to do good as well as seen an opportunity to provide a good uh, service or goods including, for instance, shortages uh, for the health and social care uh, system, um, the food chain and the like, Uh, but also, I think, in terms of seeing the the synergy between the private and the voluntary sector and using people's uh, commitment to each other in a very positive way. I'm not sentimental about this. Things will revert. Mm -hmm. But actually, I think there is a kind of, moment of moral judgment of people feeling that they've got a role to play outside the immediate survival that they're engaged in and if we can hang on to a little bit of that social responsibility that will be a very positive outcome absolutely now what's your broad view of how the government is responding to this are you broadly supportive of their measures Well, it may surprise people to hear that that I have been very supportive. Of course, there's been legitimate criticisms about the speed of response on protective equipment and on issues relating to testing. But my own view is very similar to the challenge that was made to the Prime Minister of Italy when people said, why didn't you close Italy down faster? And he said, a fortnight before we did it, I would have been considered to be a madman and nobody would have agreed to do it Mm. if I'd tried to move too quickly. And I I think that's something that we need to reflect on here in the UK. We we may have seen the signals elsewhere uh, across the world and taken them more seriously at the time. Hindsight is a wonderful thing. But as someone who's uh, had his life in uh, the opposite uh, political party to the, the present government, I think that with some hiccups and mistakes, they've not done a bad job in what has been incredibly difficult circumstances. And you're absolutely right. In a a liberal uh, democracy that we live in, it's it's very difficult for people to swallow orders given to them from government. Um, Well, the the UK and and the US, and to some extent the Scandinavian countries, have a very different interest, uh, history and, and therefore interest in maintaining the freedom to decide and the persuasion and mm. consent that's required. Uh, those countries that have experienced one way or another totalitarianism over the last century have a slightly different way of coming at this. Mm. I don't want to exaggerate it, but I think that that's why getting the balance right of 
getting people to go along with what you want them to do in their interests as well as the nation as a whole is a sensible proportional balance. And I think we now need to adjust to the coming out of the crisis gradually, uh, readjusting to recovery uh, in the same way. Now, something you've mentioned recently on this balance is uh, the police overreach and the enforcement of the COVID-19 uh, structures that have been put in place. What have they done right and where have they gone too far? Well, I think that they were interpreting what was not necessarily as clear yeah. advice as it might have been for all kinds of reasons because people were feeling their way. I think what's come out of it has been uh, a demonstration by local police services in some parts of the country that they could get people to do what was needed without the heavy hand of drones overhead mm. or people being told that they you know, shouldn't be walking in the street because this was all about self-isolation, not incarceration. It was about getting people not to pass the infection on to each other and therefore to provide distance rather than to make our lives a misery. Those police services that adopted that policing by consent and chipping people along did really well. Those who went over the top, I think, soon got a very substantial pushback. And one of the strengths of our democracy is that you could have that debate. People could say, I'm terribly sorry, we, we think the police force in our area has gone over the top. And that in itself is a constraint and uh, a readjustment. That, that's another strength of... Um, living in a country where you can have opinions and express them without actually being thought to be a fool. Now, of course, uh, the government has faced criticism uh, that they were slow to react, uh, and Boris Johnson wasn't present at the early COVID-19 COBRA meetings. Now, uh, Number 10 has claimed that this is normal practice. Uh, the health secretary often chairs COBRA meetings uh, related to health. Uh, does this tally with your experience as a Secretary of State, or would you have expected the PM uh, to be more hands-on during the initial stages? I think different Prime Ministers do have a very different style. And Boris's style, which I think will now be considerably adjusted, was very swashbuckling. In some senses, delegating is a good thing, uh, as every leader of every business or public service knows those who try to pull too much into themselves end up with a massive bottleneck, a great uh, failure of trust and the inability of people to show what they're worth and to, to demonstrate their capability. So I, I, I'd be very wary of jumping in and saying he was wrong to delegate the essential COBRA meetings. What I was surprised about was that he didn't um, chair the first couple because my experience with Tony Blair for the eight years I was in cabinet was that Tony was a great delegator, but he would get a grip to begin with, watch what the difficulties were, and then give people direction and confidence to be able to get on with it. So looking back, I think Boris himself probably thinks, God, I wish I'd spotted the signals from elsewhere in the world more rapidly, and I'd just been there. However, this also raises another issue all of us in positions of leadership need good teams around us. Mm -hmm. I think after this is over, he will be assessing those who really did step up and those who demonstrated their inadequacy. I think we'll probably end up in a year's time with a much stronger cabinet than we have today. 
Well, absolutely. And of course, uh, we've seen a, a significant uh, drop in the visibility of uh, certain special advisors like Dominic Cummings uh, during this uh, entire period. So it'd be interesting to see how that pans out. Um, well, yeah. it's certainly readjusted the role of those behind the scenes with those who should be taking the decisions having received advice. Obviously, there's been a complete transformation in the profile of experts, if I might use that term, who'd previously been denigrated. Mm -hmm. Scientists, medics, people with behavioral science uh, understanding. My only criticism was, were we getting wide enough advice? Were we narrowing it too much to a couple of key centers in London? But that's because I've always been adverse to everything being London-centric. I think there's great expertise, wisdom, experience out in the sticks, and uh, we should use it. Uh, rightly so. Um, now, was part, pandemic planning part of your time as a minister, particularly perhaps uh, when you were Home Secretary? Well, it was, but it was on the back of risk arising out of counter-terrorism measures. Right. Uh, I was the Home Secretary for three months when the attack took place in September 2001 on the World Trade Center and beyond. We did an enormous amount of uh, scenario planning, both desktop and, and real. On the back of that, it was very heavily orientated to future developing terrorism risk. I certainly got involved with talking about pandemics. I remember being at a seminar in Edinburgh where the university there had done a lot of work itself on the issue of pandemics. And of course, we, we saw SARS and other things emerging. I, I think it would. people criticized the government for not picking up the report from 2015, five years ago. I think that what happens is human nature kicks in. You deal with what you're immediately faced with. Mm. You, you, can, you can sponsor reports. And this is true of business planning, of course, as well, and scenario planning for what business continuity will look like, recovery plans for business, what will happen if um, there's a cyber attack, what happens if there's an energy shutdown. Shut um, these kind of things you, you can look at. But you're immediately turning your eyes to what's in front of you. And had we picked up a bit more on the danger from Ebola and SARS and what have you in the past, then we might have said, what if something hits us in the developed nations that we don't have a vaccine for, mm -hmm. that we can't immediately whisk up uh, protective materials or equipment or, for that matter, medicines that help with recovery, all of which we now see are a danger. I think this will make an enormous difference to the planning for the for the years ahead. I hope it will be widened so that we don't just look at what's happened. Because very rarely do you see something exactly repeat itself. Some of the circumstances will be, but others won't. So that's why I've put emphasis in what I talk about on looking at the other virus, the cyber attack uh, scenario, mm -hmm. which could be just as dangerous in a, uh, a world of just-in-time provision. One of the miracles of uh, the modern developed world, except for the very poor, has been the distribution of food. A lot of it on computerized, uh, technologically advanced systems. 
if that were to come down, we'd be in real trouble. So I think we need to think those sort of scenarios as well. So have a full plan across uh, both sectors, uh, biological warfare, pandemics, and uh, cyber warfare. Yes, and to do so on different levels, I think, again, thinking of thinking global but acting local, we Mm. need a lot more to think about what would happen if something took shape that actually broke down those national and global chains and how we would cope. And without, uh, obviously, we've got enough fear and anxiety to last a lifetime without creating even more anxiety. We can think about those things for the future in a more rational way, I think. Now, aside from the physical uh, threat of the virus, one of the things that people are vastly worried about is the effect on uh, the economy, not just national economy, but also the world economy. Um, now, it, it has been said by certain parties, um, and uh, I'd like to garner your uh, thoughts on this. Is there a danger of the effects of the lockdown being even worse than those of the virus? Were it be to prolonged, I fear that that balance would tip the other way. It is about proportionality. It is about balance. It's the wisdom of Solomon, really, to to get the moment right when you start to move and then to move quickly. There's no doubt whatsoever that we are stocking up, not just on the economic and employment front, which will be devastating enough, but on the health and social well-being front, enormous challenges. And they will need careful handling because there's a lot of people whose lives for a variety of reasons are at risk in the future on a scale that we've been dealing with over the the immediate handling of the pandemic concentrating really hard on those affected by COVID-19 those sadly who have died or been seriously incapacitated that will roll over into the economic, the social, the mental health and cultural well-being of the nation. And that will need all of us to pull together as well. Absolutely. Now, do you believe the government's doing enough for business? I think that the speed of reaction once the scale of the pandemic was clear was very good. I've praised Ricky Sunak for his action. Uh, Remember, a chancellor who only just come into office was planning to deliver the budget in the middle of March and has had three, at least three equivalent budgets since. I think he's handled it very well, understandably worried now about what we're doing to our economy. The level of borrowing is sustainable because of low interest rates, but it reaches a point, of course, where it tips over so that you can't then do the kind of structural investment requirements that the government were laying out before and in the March budget. And those will have their consequences as well as a planned payback over many years. I think we've learned something over the last few months. We we needed to take immediate action. We don't want another round of austerity equivalent from 2010 through to 2019. I don't think the nation on the back of what's happened and the challenges we have could take that. And therefore, we need a different plan, economic plan, over a much longer period, just as we did 
from the Second World War all the way through to 2002, when the final American loans were paid off. Now, of course, uh, one thing that's on everyone's lips, um, how much longer do you believe uh, that the lockdown can go on for? I believe that we need to be substantially back in action as an economy in June. This obviously is layered in terms of places where people would meet in large numbers, having to uh, adjust to the fact that it will be longer for them. And sadly, that will involve business closures. It's why the Chancellor extended the furlough scheme to the end of June. Mm. But unless we we get things moving in June, I think we'll run into the summer where all kinds of services and industries will have a chain reaction effect. And what happens with one will then have a major impact on another. And then you get the skittle effect where things get knocked down that you hadn't perceived were going to be affected. So I very much... If I were in government, and I always think of things in that context, what would I do if I were in government? I would be on the side from the second week in May, on the side of the hawks in terms of saying we've got to start moving and we've got to do so with the collaboration and cooperation of the public who have got the message, who did behave, who responded magnificently. Let's try and get back, perhaps you know, doing things differently for a time, but substantially getting back to business as usual, unless we do that, then those areas that can't and wouldn't expect to be back in action immediately get pushed further into the middle of the year and the autumn, and then they become unsustainable. Now, of course, um, one of the other major developments we've had recently are the changes in the uh, the Labour Party. So if we could just uh, speak on the Labour Party for uh, a while... Um, this might sound like uh, an obvious question, but uh, how does uh, Secure uh, differ from Mr. Corbyn? Well, I'm biased because I believe the Labour Party um, has come out of four and a half years of a black hole of a nightmare mm. uh, where it neither represented a, a, a credible opposition nor a, an electable government, and the combination was to let those who supported the Labour Party and needed some of its policies uh, let them down very badly. Sir Keir Starmer both is a highly intelligent uh, professional lawyer who, as Director of Public Prosecutions, led the service well, uh, had to take difficult decisions at a time of austerity, understands the world beyond Labour members, but has been able to do business with those who originally supported Jeremy Corbyn mm-hmm. and was able to command support from them. His creation of a balanced shadow ministerial team has been very encouraging. Um, I, I supported Lisa Nandy, who he's made shadow foreign secretary, because I thought she understood the north of England and uh, the, uh, the disaffected uh, Labour, former Labour voters. But I believe that Sakir has taken on board those who have something really sensible to offer. And I believe he will be both a, a great leader of the opposition, 
more importantly, will then present himself as a credible alternative prime minister. And all governments need an alternative government at their shoulder. Mm. Uh, it was true of us from 97, and it took the Conservatives some time to recover and to get to that position, but they did, and the Labour Party will, and that's crucial for our democracy. All of us need to understand and appreciate that a living, breathing, functioning democracy requires uh, a credible, confident, and uh, in many ways uh, supportable opposition as well as a government that we clearly want to do well because none of us want, as we didn't with the COVID crisis, none of us want the government to fail. We want to see our economy recover. We want our social well-being to be taken into account. We want to overcome deep-seated inequality and poverty. And we want to do it with enterprise and entrepreneurship and business playing their role. And that is about leadership nationally, locally, in the private and the public sector, people with ideas, with confidence, with the ability to pull teams around them, above all, to have some idea of what it is they want to achieve and a very good idea as to how to achieve it. Now, of course, one of the biggest problems Secure is facing will be tackling the party's anti-Semitism problem. Uh, there has been a recent internal report that has been quite damning uh, what's your response uh, to that report, and what does Secure need to do in response? Well, there are two reports. One, which is being produced by the Quality and Human Rights Commission, uh, which he will, and has already indicated, will implement in full. The second was a leaked report put together by the supporters of Jeremy Corbyn, 800 pages of private uh, interchanges on social media which he has, uh, Keir Starmer, set up an investigation to identify uh, who did it, who leaked it, what the content was, does it have any salience and lessons for us, and where necessary action will be taken. So I hope that as he moved very quickly to reassure the Jewish community, so he will be able to take the necessary steps to back up that reassurance with the kind of actions that says that this was a blight on a historic great political party that all of us, all of us were ashamed of. We've been able to put that behind us and to move on to facing the future with confidence. What's the one king, uh, key thing that Sakira needs to do to restore Labour as an election-winning party? I think Sakir Starmer's major challenge is to convince sceptical voters that Labour has not only reverted to a party that they can support because they can see it acting, developing, presenting as a credible alternative government, mm -hmm. but also that the lessons have been learned from the fiasco from 2015 onwards. In other words, there have to be very clear signals of substantial change, not just the right words, not just reassurance that we're not uh, going back to some of the crazier uh, policies, but actually that we've understood why the electorate rejected those policies so substantially in December 2019. If people get that message, 
they'll understand that the Labour Party has changed, as it did in the 1980s and early 90s, to become the electable government with the greatest majority and historic majority, even greater than 1945, which I was privileged to be able to take advantage of in 1997 when I joined the cabinet. Now, I know what your answer is going to be to this question, but uh, indulge me. Um, do you think Secure has what it takes to be PM? Yes, I do. I think he has the background, he has the experience, he has the professionalism, he has the forensic uh, mindset, and he has the confidence to have put a team around him which will ensure that it will work. And those elements are true of all leaders. Ideas, the ability to build a team, to have confidence in that team, uh, and to be able to demonstrate leadership in practice, sometimes at the most difficult times. And, you know, the Leaders' Council, those sharing their thoughts with uh, um, the kind of thing that we're doing now uh, with uh, a podcast, but also joining us in linking up in that network of people who can support and help each other and learn from mm -hmm. each other, that is what needs to be done in politics as it needs to be done in business. Thank well, you very much indeed, Matthew. Well, really thank you for coming on the, uh, the program. It's been a, an absolute pleasure, and I look forward to speaking with you again. Thank you very much, and good luck to all those listening in what has been a nightmare scenario. Good luck for the future. Have courage have confidence, and yes, listen to those who know more about business than I ever will. Thank you, Lord Blunkett. Thank you. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.